This week on Writers Inc. The marketing emails I sent out when I was running CD Baby, I learned the hard way that if you say too much, people don't read it. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. Zach, what's new? Uh, Zach? Zach? Oh, wait. <laughs> Zach's not here today. We, we need crickets. We need, like, a little sound effect. I know. I know. I mean, we, we had to, like, we had to make fun of him, right? Like, he's, his poor daughter's sick, and, but we have to take the opportunity to make fun of him. So, uh, yeah, he's not here today. Yeah, well, I, I sound like I'm sick. Um, so I was teaching a Zoom class yesterday for eight hours, and I woke up this morning sounding like this. Um, so apparently my, <laughs> my voice doesn't like it when I do that. So that, that's going to be my excuse next time somebody asks me to, to, to teach a class or something. I, I can't do it because my voice goes out. Um, so, yeah, so I may cut out of this about halfway through. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. Like, I don't want to go into too much detail as far as what's going on with Zach, but I, my daughter went to the ER for the first time this week, too. Oh, fun. Uh, so, yeah, so it's been like a, a nasty, you know, daughter problem day i guess on the writers inc cast um so it was on monday um and i had to go to a one a town hall meeting um for my my nasty neighbor she's she's trying to to sue us again like she filed a lawsuit against the town and against me and wanted to take down this uh, retaining wall that i put up um so we had to go to the meeting to basically find out what the result of the select board's decision was whether they were going to allow her to do what she wanted to do or they were going to shoot her down um and like five minutes before i had to leave the house for that my wife comes walking into my office like super fast carrying my daughter and like there's just blood just hosing over oh. the bottom of her chin. And apparently they were in the, the sitting room right across from my office and my door was closed. And my daughter tried to make a bridge out of couch cushions going from like a coffee table to the couch. Um, you know, which obviously didn't end well. <laughs> so she <laughs> fell and just kind of clipped her chin on the, the coffee table. And like the bleeding was like already stopping, but you know, like at four years old, like we didn't want her to get a scar or anything. So my wife loaded her up in the car, took her to urgent care. And like, she walked through the door and there's like 40 people in there all waiting oh. for COVID tests, you know? Oh, so like, she's immediately no. scared half to death, you know, cause our daughter's obviously not vaccinated and you know, we are, but she's not. Um, so she waited in there and she found like a little corner, you know, like hosed everything off with Purell and waited for, I guess about an hour, an hour and a half or something um and then she just decided to go to the er instead and i, I was, i'm on text you know like at this meeting you know trying to talk her out of that i'm like if you go there and like you're gonna basically start that clock over again the er yeah. is probably just as bad and you're gonna have to wait again and you know you're so but she went there and, and like there was nobody in the er um so she got like super lucky they they didn't have to do stitches they used that that cool crazy glue stuff that that doctors have um and kind of glued my daughter back together again and, and sent her <laughs> home with you know a bunch of lollipops and stuff so so it was all good but i, I was feeling like such a heel because you know like I, I should have been there you know for my daughter's first trip to the er you know like it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's 
I just it's you know a special like a, moment. Yeah, it's, a, it's one of those things. Like I'm trying to be there for every one of those those special moments, and you know, luckily it wasn't a broken bone or anything. But meanwhile, I'm stuck sitting in a courtroom because of my my evil nasty neighbors. So just one more list, you know, reason or one more thing on the long list of reasons not to like this woman. I, I guess I just sort of chalked it up to that. So what was the result in the courtroom? They they completely ruled against her. Oh, okay. uh, and because what she's trying to do is just it was absolutely silly and, and vindictive and you know like there's there's really no basis like legal basis for it you know like I, I you know, me being autistic like I don't get emotional about these types of things like when I get a problem like that thrown in front of me I, I look at it you know as you know logically as I can you know I look at all the, the law and you know I, like you figure out what, what side of the law you're going to basically fall on what's applicable and what's not and you know that that's kind of how I come to my decision where other people you know tend to get angry and go no 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 you got to do you know and that's kind of where she's at she emotional about certain things um so yeah so it, it got hashed out and I, I don't know i mean she'd have to go to a superior court i think at this point to try and overturn that um and i wouldn't be surprised if she she does i mean yeah. even knowing that it's you know it's like she's on her third or fourth attorney because they keep turning her down and walking away but you know she'll find somebody willing to file uh, they're 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 out there so aside from that um my wife went to pittsburgh um uh, they actually left yesterday with my daughter so like i'm wandering around in this big house all by myself and it's like it, it is so freaking quiet um and like i'm just not used to it you know like it seems so weird to be the only person here and like you know no noise going on in the other room and you know e even like last night you know like not putting my daughter to bed you know like all the little routine stuff that i'm just so right. used to do and i didn't get to do and yeah like so i'm i'm totally out of sorts you know for yeah and my voice is going so it's <laughs> <laughs> so what are you working on then Working on, um, I just finished up that screenplay. Well, kind of, sort of. I, so I basically, I, I'm not allowed to say what book it is because, you know, Hollywood, they, they like to you know, keep everything all quiet. But um, I was basically asked to write the screenplay for one of my novels. So what I did was I basically went through the entire book page by page and I retyped the book, you know, like just dialogue. Um, and then I, I, you know, supplemented anything that was just text, um, you know, descriptive stuff and things like that. I, I changed all of it into the normal screenplay format. Um, typed it all into this program and I basically just followed the book all the way through because I, I wanted to get it all down on paper. Um, my movie is now four and a half hours long. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if they were to actually film it um, and obviously that's not going to happen. Like I reached out to my film agent anyway and I was like, hey, remember back in the day when like ABC and CBS and those guys would do like a two or three day mini series? You know, th those were about four and a half hours long, right? You know, like if you take the commercials out, um, he's like, they don't do that anymore. So, <laughs> so now that the tricky part is I've got to go back through this four and a half hours screenplay and I've got to take out enough stuff to get it down to the, the magic time frame which apparently is two hours and five minutes um, which wow. is based on, based on Die Hard um, like there, there's a superstition in Hollywood like I had no idea this existed before but Die Hard hits so big that they, they use that formula as like the basis for future action type thrillers um, so all the Die Hard movies are, are roughly two hours and five minutes or two hours and four minutes speed is two hours and five minutes like every big action movie that's hit in like the 80s and 90s was you know era after Die Hard is, is around two hours and five minutes um so that's my goal i got to figure out how to do that um the, the hard part with that though is you know like when you write a book you know you get the whole story down on paper or at least this is the way i do it and then i go through and i kind of trim the fat you know and i and i get it to the the hardcore you know the bones of that story get it as lean as i possibly can um so in my mind the story is already there you know so now i've got to go through and cut out half you know almost half yeah. of, of the, the book um so that means i've got to you know eliminate you know entire characters or entire storylines or or combine this combine that and and that's going to be a very tricky thing so we'll see where it goes but that, that's the next step in this process um what are you working on i got uh two projects in the works right now one's nonfiction, one's uh fiction the, the fiction one is a uh serial project that uh 
called uh, Bigfoot versus Zombie Squirrels. I may have mentioned it before. It's a bit of a parody. <laughs> you uh, think? <laughs> yeah, a bit. Uh, and uh, Stephanie Bond at, at the Career Author Summit did an incredible presentation on serialized fiction. So I'm, uh, she's been helping me with that. I'm going to try and, and fit it to that format, which is July 1st. And uh, she writes it in real time. Um, I'm not as confident <laughs> in doing that. So I'm trying to finish it before July 1st. Um, but uh, that that's that's been fun. It's just total goofball stuff. So it's like it's almost like writing that I don't even have to think about. Um, <laughs> so that's fun. And then I'm working uh, on a three story method book called Writing Scenes, and this is the book I'm going to use as my NFT experiment. Uh, so at some point, probably in January or February, uh, I'm going to publish that book, but also publish an NFT version of it. And um, it's going to be more, it's not uh, necessarily art. It's going to be more of uh, like a utility NFT. Um, and so it's going to come with like coaching or it's going to come with access to a workshop or, or something along those lines. I haven't quite figured that out. Uh, but preparing for that, what I've been doing this month and I'm going to continue to do in the near future is I've been buying NFTs just to see like what is the experience like. And so... I've purchased NFTs on the Ethereum chain, uh, Solana, uh, purchased one on uh, Tezos. Uh, Mike Shinoda from Linkin Park put a, a, a generative mixtape one out that I bought. And it's really fascinating to kind of be on the consumer or fan side of it and get that experience. And so that's helping me to kind of figure out like where the problems are, like which blockchains have the lowest fees. Um, so it's... It's not always easy because, um, as you experienced, you know, you get into some this crypto stuff is so new that the infrastructure just isn't built yet. And so you hit these dead ends or you have these these glitches and there's like no one to ask to figure it out. Uh, but all of that is going towards like knowing what I want to do with the book sometime in Q1 of 2022. All right. So I've got questions. Um, so when, when you buy an NFT, what, what do you what do you get? Like, I'm, there's nothing physical, right? Like, did they just no. send you a file, like, with like a certificate, like an? Yeah, the, the NFT is the certificate. That's a good way of thinking about it. So, okay. like, if uh, it would be like if um, you know, you own the Mona Lisa and you had a certificate that said it was yours, but I mean, there's there are prints and people can take pictures of it. Like, it doesn't mean you're the only one that has access to it. It means you're the you're the owner. Um, so, like for Mike Shinoda's project, the Ziggurats, what he did what he called a generative mixtape is he created a song and a piece of art and it's like a seven minute song. But what he did is he did like nine different versions of the music and nine different versions of the lyrics. And like for the images, some of the, some of the, uh, the images, they changes hairstyles and other, he changes the clothing. So when you get this combination, you get 10,000 unique NFTs, but they're all coming from the same source material. Okay. And so some of the attributes then are more, are rarer than others. Like, you know, you might have like an NFT um, that's worth more might, there might only be like 0.7% of the collection that has this particular color on the image or something like that. So it's, it's really Kate, like that is really catered to like collectors and fans. And I'm in the discord channel, uh, the discord server for his fan group. And there's like 5,000, hardcore Mike Shinoda fans in there and they're like constantly posting theirs and trading and selling. And, um, it's just, it's an, it's an education in that sort of community experience. All right. So each one is unique. So if, if a hardcore collector would have to buy 10,000 different things if they wanted like the full collection, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, huh. and, and that's one example, like you could have a collection of 10 
or a collection of 100. And yeah, that, that would be, if you think about the collector's mindset, that's what they want to do, right? Like even the old school baseball cards, you want right. like the whole collection, not yeah. just one, right? So it's kind of along those lines. So, okay. So I'm, I'm the hardest part I have or dealing with this is the fact that there's nothing physical. So I'm guessing this, this resides totally on your computer or in the cloud or something like what, how are you storing whatever it is you bought? Yeah. So it lives on the blockchain. So it, it's immutable. Like it's distributed on databases all over the world, thousands and thousands of databases. So in theory, like, you know, unless an asteroid hit the earth and that's not going to happen because we got Bruce Willis, but if, <laughs> but if an asteroid hit the earth and destroyed I, I all the I can guarantee that, that that movie is two hours and five minutes probably if you look <laughs> yeah, it up. It probably is, right. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't go anywhere. So what I, um, you, you have a, a, what's called a wallet. So if you imagine you buy crypto from an exchange like Coinbase, that imagine that is the bank, and then you send that money to your wallet. It's a digital wallet. and But your wallet also holds your collections. So when I went to the Tezos blockchain and I gave them X number of Tezos and then I got the NFT, it's now in that wallet. But it exists as both an MP3 file and a JPEG file. So I could download those and keep them on my computer. I could send them to other people. It's not necessarily about the physical item or the digital item. It's about the ownership of the item. Okay. Now, how do you prove your you like if, for that wallet? Like, is that password protected or something unique that nobody else can get to? Or how do Yeah, you every that? wallet has its own unique hash or its own unique address, just like an email address. So in the same way that you could create an email address like, you know, funky monkey 49 at gmail or whatever and like no one would know that was you but that's a unique identifier for that email address wallets are the same way all right now so when you die because that's going to happen at some point how, how does your son get to this thing there's something called a seed phrase and if you give that seed phrase to somebody else it's like a really long password uh then they can access your wallet all um right. and and so that i mean that's a security risk just like passwords are What's interesting, though, and I know you, you might be interested about uh, in this, and w we should talk off air maybe. One of the things that's happening right now is there are domain name registrations for different blockchains. So I went out and I registered jthorn.eth, jthorn.sol, jthorn.tez, so that those are the unique identifiers for a wallet on that, on that blockchain. So if, I were, if any of those blow up, let's say Solana blows up, I now own jthorn.sol. And so that's my sort of public wallet that people could send crypto to. So it's sort of like domains, domain squatting now. Yeah, I mean, it, it's fascinating to me because it's basically mimicking real life in a, in a certain way, you know, like the, the wallet, you know, physical wallet, you know, it, the whole chain, like everything about it is mimicking something in real life, but it's going to, you know, 100% virtual. Yeah. Um, I, I, honestly, where my head's at is my wife's got the entire Gilmore Girls um, DVD collection upstairs in our home theater, and like she will not get rid of it, even though you can stream it from a gazillion different services. And like maybe if I show her all this stuff, I can prove to her that it can live in the in the cloud somewhere. She doesn't have to keep these anymore. Maybe I can get her to finally pull the trigger. Yeah, maybe there's a Gilmore Girls NFT coming down the line. There, there may that. be. Okay, <laughs> we should probably get into the show. Yeah, let's uh, give a shout out to Kobo Writing Life, our wonderful sponsors. Uh, KWL always uh, empowers you, the author, to take your career into your own hands. And they have uh, non-exclusive rights, so you can publish wide. You can go to as many countries in the world uh, as they sell. And you can do all that by going to KoboWritingLife.com. 
Also want to give a nice shout out to our patrons. If you would like to become a supporter of the show and be able to submit questions for our monthly Q&A episode, you can do that at patreon.com slash writers inc podcast. And that brings us to our guest. All right, and you brought this guy in, so why don't you go ahead and introduce him? I can't talk anymore. My, my voice is going. Yeah, introduce him before before I'm gone completely. Limit the number of words that you're saying. Yeah, yeah. this is this is Derek Sivers. Really excited to talk to Derek. Uh, most people know him as the founder of CD Baby, but he has uh, done a lot of things. Uh, he's a musician, uh, mo- and more recently, he's an author, and he's published a few books, and he's done some really unique things. Um, and uh, got a chance, you know. Uh, to ask him about some of those, and, and I think uh, I think you're going to find his his responses interesting. So, uh, let's let's take listen to Derek Sivers. I have to be a little selfish, I think, and and the first question I need to ask you is, uh, who was one of your favorite heavy metal guitarists from the 1980s? My absolute, I should say, first favorite, like special place in my heart was Randy Rhodes. Um, In fact, I even know the day he died, March 19th, 1982. And I bought a black flying V and went to the stationery store and got a bunch of white polka dot uh, stickers and stuck it on my flying V exactly the way Randy Rhodes had his and uh, memorized all his guitar solos and had his posters all over my wall. So Randy Rhodes was like my first favorite um and then yeah but god then like Ingve Malmsteen blew me away later and ah, man all of those like late 80s I know I should say like mid 80s mid 80s fast fingered heavy metal guitarists I just I was immersed in that pool I loved <laughs> All of that. And I would memorize every solo. Like I'd learn every solo, you know, use them to practice my finger technique and picking technique and memorize them and play along. And I was in a band that would play all that stuff. And yeah, I just loved it. It seems like there's a a classical theme running through that. It seems like you like the guys that play with a, a more classical style. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, we joke later at like, later I went to Berkeley School of Music, right? Where it's right. like people are seriously studying music. And we joke about how we would call it the classical part because Randy Rhodes switched to an acoustic guitar for a minute, but you know, come on, let's like in the bigger picture of things, that's about as classical as a uh, jingle on TV, you know? Um, But uh, yeah, I guess I was, I maybe because I grew up in Chicago, um, I was never that into the blues side of things because it seemed to be too, commonplace for me right like uh growing up in chicago i didn't realize till i till a couple years after i left that not every venue that serves alcohol in the entire world has a blues band (laughs) right but in chicago it feels like they did like i just thought that was just a given like wherever alcohol is served there's a blues band and it wasn't until i left chicago i went oh okay i get it i grew up in chicago the home of the blues all right now i see <laughs> but yeah so blues based guitarists were not as interesting to me but um yeah anyway yeah well that was a fun first question thank well, you oh you're welcome thanks uh, i i kind of figured with your background and knowing the what the 14 year old derek was up to i thought you'd have a few guitarists uh, on the tip of your tongue so <laughs> but you know what's funny is um my one of my best friends from high school 
and also the bassist in my band that I talked about that we'd play all these songs. His name's Mark Striegel, and now he runs a podcast called Talking Metal. <laughs> and so Mark Striegel stayed with this and still does. Like Talking Metal is on, you know, episode whatever, 100,000 or something now. <laughs> and he has interviewed all of our old heroes and stayed in that world. And it's so impressive. It's so cool. So yeah, go to talkingmetal.com, I think it is, and check out his video podcast and podcast. And it's so cool to him see my old high school buddy talking to all of our old heroes. That's awesome, man. I'm going to check that out as soon as we're done. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, I'll tell you a semi-secret yeah. is in... One of my books, uh, the book called Your Music and People, I talk about my friend Captain T. Yes. And how I produced Captain. So Mark Striegel is Captain T. Oh, nice. He's Captain T. Yeah. That is cool. So Captain T is talking metal <laughs> podcaster, dude. That's him. That's Captain T. Excellent. Well, as much as I'd like to talk to you more about metal, that's probably both in our distant <laughs> past. So uh, I thought maybe we'd, we'd talk about some other things, especially your your writing. I'm really curious to talk to you about your writing. Uh, but first, why don't we start with um, a more general question. Uh, what's an example of something you've removed from your life that most people uh, think is indispensable? Getting angry. <laughs> <laughs> um, I could also say coffee, but that's not as interesting of an answer. Um, it seems that, you know, you, I mean, you say most people. So it seems to me like most people seem to think that or most people seem to want to get angry yes. about things that they read in social media. There's a bumper sticker that uh, somebody in my neighborhood had that I saw a lot. The bumper sticker said, if you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. But I think, and that always bothered me. And I still think about it. I mean, here I am. It was like 15 years ago I saw that bumper sticker. So I think that if you're outraged, you're not, channeling your attention or your energy wisely like if you're going to make real change right then then rage is unstrategic and if you're not going to make real change well then rage is just making yourself upset for no reason so the best i can figure for now not that i've thought about it that much is that it's the reason people do this rage on social media thing is it's kind of social signaling, like to broadcast what you're against to help define who you are. Like, I'm against this. I'm mad about that. This is who I am. But personally, I have no need for that. And I think that there are much better ways to show who you are. Oh, such as? Doing something. <laughs> Making something, just sitting at home and clicking outraged at this, outraged at that, mad about this, retweeting that. It does nothing. It's just unfocused, unproductive waste of energy. But on the other hand, you know, I mean, for eons, people have enjoyed gossiping and getting mad about what Lucy in the next town over is doing. So I guess it's also just a modern version of that. It's like a thing that humans do, but I just find it really uh, unproductive or just kind of a waste of our human minutes on earth. How did you get rid of it? How did you walk away from anger? 
I just never got into it. I think that um, it's funny. Sonia Lombersky is a uh, studier of uh, uh, happiness, like psychology. She's written some books on happiness. And she said that from her studies that about 50% of our happiness is just our DNA. And 50% is under our control. But like about 50% is just a lucky roll of the dice. Um, And I've just always been a happy person. And it's really interesting to see that my kid got that roll of the DNA dice, I think even better than me. Um, Like even as a newborn baby, just never a tantrum, never really cried, never gets upset. Something goes wrong. He just shrugs and goes, oh, well, (laughs) just so. um, So sometimes I think it's just DNA. Um, I'm also really. I'm also really lucky. And really, you know, like privileged, but I don't know how much of that is um, we bring upon ourselves and how much was just, again, like a roll of the dice of destiny. You know, I could have been born in Myanmar and having a pretty bad time right now with the new government or something. Um, And maybe I'd be getting outraged more often if that was the case. But yeah, I think a lot of it's just, maybe it is also 50% DNA, 50% life circumstances. Does your son still run over to people who have fallen and and put his arm around him and help him up? I think. When was the last time he did that? Um, It's been a while, but that's still in his nature yeah i think it's just coincidentally been a while since we've seen somebody fall over that he would have the chance to do that too but yeah thanks yeah. for remembering that example that was a sweet one yeah that uh the world's changed a bit i think uh in the past year and a half or so uh one of the things too is that i noticed you you had a a, a pretty long hiatus from from podcast and uh, i asked you to come on and, and you did and i'm curious as to why you said yes to me I like what you've done with the Author Life website, like the services you're doing for self-published authors. I think that's really cool. Um, And also because of my past as an entrepreneur, a lot of people want to talk business with me. And I just don't want to talk about business. I'd rather talk about writing. So yeah, I get lots of interviews, interviews, sorry, interview requests from entrepreneurs that want to talk business and i just don't want to uh, let's i want to talk about writing so yeah excellent let's do that uh i, I think you had said that <laughs> cd baby was maybe your like chapter three chapter two chapter three that's way in the rearview mirror so let's talk yeah. a little bit about how to live uh you said that's the best thing you've ever written can you explain why i worked harder on it <laughs> <laughs> um it, it was I think like a lot of us have this, you get your initial flash of inspiration with that moment where I went, Ooh, I know what I want to make. And I, I saw how this thing would play out, but it was going to be a lot of work to do it right. So I worked almost full time for two years to write the rough draft of getting in every idea I wanted to include in this book. And it was, uh, I think over, I had over 2,400 ideas indexed and categorized. And I 
explained each of those 2,400 ideas. And so the rough draft of the book came to over 1,300 pages. Wow. And I, so I thought, okay, well, nobody's, this, this is not how the book should be. This was just me getting all of the ideas in place. But God, nobody's going to read this 1,300 page thing. So then began two years of editing. So almost full time for two years, I chopped down those 1,300 pages down to 110 very sparse pages. So that made every single word carry a lot of weight. Um, so what's left is something that is unlike any book. Uh, it's really unique. And that's a great feeling. You know, I, I think about how creators in the past who have made something really unique must feel like, I don't know, like I love the movie Pulp Fiction, right? And I think Tarantino did something really, really unique with Pulp Fiction. He was referencing things in the past, but what he made within the, the timelines and the kind of shifting time focus in that movie made something really unique. And uh, that's just a really cool feeling to know that you've added something really special and unique to the world. And, and um, I also love that it lived up to my initial flash of inspiration, like that moment where I thought of how cool this idea could be. And then I surpassed it because I just worked so hard on it that I just, every single word just, yeah, I, I ruthlessly focused on every single word until I just felt like that is the absolute best that this sentence can be onto the next sentence, right? So I feel like I could die happy just having made this book. Like if I did nothing else in my life on my deathbed, I'm like, I wrote how to live. That's, that was a good contribution to this planet. So yeah, what, it's a great feeling. What did that process look like? Uh, I, I mean, when you say full-time for two years, are you, are you typing? Are you handwriting? Are you dictating? What's the revision process like? Typing, I use an old school 70s Unix terminal editor called Vim, V-I-M. Oh, wow. Uh, I do everything in the terminal. It's the same thing I use for coding okay. and programming. It's just so, it's kind of a, um, once you have the skills under your fingers, it's kind of, it, it's got a, what do you call it? A steep learning curve. It's got a really steep learning curve, but once you have it under your fingers, you can be like a magician, just kind of foo, 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 moving blocks of text around and this and chopping this and delete seven words and place them here. And it's, it's an amazing skill to have for, for both programming and writing. Uh, See, so yeah, I do everything in the terminal and it's completely, you know, ancient open source program that can be used on any piece of hardware ever. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to subscribe to it. So that's another thing I love, but um, yeah, so a lot, I mean, the initial two years was just me brain dumping. Yes. Writing, not, not dictating. Um, although it's funny, I, I, I might get more into dictating. I've, I've noticed that when I'm texting on my phone, I don't use my thumbs so much as I hit that little microphone and talk and let it do the uh, speech to text transcription of my thing. So I might get more into that in the future for writing, but only for the rough draft, because then when it comes to editing, then yeah, I really want to look at every single word and make it prove it's purpose on earth you know um so yeah the it was kind of 
whatever, hundreds of hours of just editing more than anything for those last two years. Why don't uh, Did that make sense? Sorry, I can't remember if that answered your original no, question. No, it does. Yeah. I was just trying to imagine what that looked like and, and how you were uh, coming up with those massive number of pages. Uh, it it might be worthwhile uh, sharing the premise. We don't want to we don't want to share the we don't want to spoil the end. But but the premise. Oh yeah, of course, <laughs> sure. Um, okay, for in fact, for I'm just talking to my fellow authors now, so I'll I'll give it to you from that point of view. Nice. Is there is a book by David Eagleman called Sum S U M. I highly recommend everybody read this absolutely brilliant little book. If you make me pick just one book to say it's my favorite book ever written it would be some by david eagleman and the way that it's so the format of some is uh it's, it's called 40 tales from the afterlives so it's 40 little short stories like just two or three pages along each but each one tells you what happens when you die but it's repeatedly answering the same question what happens when you die with a different answer every time. So it's like chapter three will say, uh, when you die, uh, you kind of wake up with a angel type person there to tell you that in your last life, you chose to be a man, but each time you go to earth, you can, or each, each time you're born, you can choose to be whatever creature you want. So you choose to be a horse this time because you admired the simple life of a horse. But as soon as you say that, you know, your body starts to turn into a horse and this happens and you feel your brain turning into a horse and you think, oh, no, I've made a horrible mistake because what I wanted to be was a complex man admiring the simple life of a horse. But, oh, no, now I'm forgetting what a man even is. I won't be able to appreciate my uh, horse life. And in your final moment before you become a horse, you think, I wonder what kind of complex, beautiful creature I might have been before that chose to be the, chose the simple life of a man. Oh, and that'll be chapter three, right? Brilliant little short story. But then the very next chapter, I'll see like chapter four. When you die, uh, you find yourself on uh, a table surrounded by these little thuggish creatures saying, uh, what is answer? What is answer? And it takes you a while to find out that what you knew of as your life was actually an artificial intelligence program. So you are an artificial intelligence program that these creatures wrote to find out the meaning of life. And now the program has ceased running and they want the answers. Um, so you get the idea. It just goes on like this with 40 very creative little chapters, creative, but also profound. But I just love the fact that the, I love the format and the fact that each chapter disagrees with all of the others. And so I love that book. I read it twice over a couple of years. And then one day I was driving down the road and suddenly had that little flash of inspiration where I went, oh, I want to write a book called How to Live in that same format where each chapter thinks it has the answer of how to live and in itself should be profound and complete, but then disagrees with all of the other chapters. And, uh, and that was the big idea that, that drove me for three years but only after three years did i think did i realize like how i needed to end this book and so um yeah it's got a very weird conclusion so the full title of how to live is how to live 27 conflicting answers and one weird conclusion and so um yeah because yeah also the book sum doesn't really 
conclude. It's just 40 tales and then it's done. Um, so that's, yeah, I, I deviate from the, the format, but I, the first page of the book, it says that, you know, like this is an homage to the book sum by David Eagleman. It's like a direct homage to his format that I admire so much. Yeah. And I, I admire your writing so much. I mean, all of the, the works you've published so far, um, hell yes or no is one of my favorite books ever. Uh, you, you have this very minimalistic style in that you make every word count. And as a writer, I can tell that you've revised for months or years because <laughs> only what needs to be there is there. And, uh, and I was kind of surprised in an older interview, you said you never really thought of yourself as a, as a writer of words until a yeah. few years ago. So how, how yeah. did you come across, uh, how did you manifest this sort of minimalist style in your writing? Huh. I think initially from writing lyrics, like I was a songwriter for God, how many years? 15 years. Yeah. I was a songwriter for 15 years. I wrote over a hundred songs I'd say. And so the way that you write lyrics is usually you've got the melody first. And so you know that you've only got six syllables because you've got these six notes and you want to try to fit what you're trying to say into those six syllables. And so I've, I think I was already in that mindset, right? Like the, um, yeah. So I think songwriting is a lot of it. Um, but also the marketing emails I sent out when I was running CD Baby, I learned the hard way that if you say too much, people don't read it. Uh, if you send a 10-page long newsletter or even a two-page long newsletter, people look at it quickly on their phones and they go like, Ugh, I should read that later, but then they don't. But if you can say what you need to say in three sentences, they might read it and maybe six sentences top. But I found that if I went like over seven or eight sentences, people wouldn't read it. And they'd reply back to the emails saying, great, how do I get involved? And it's like, please see sentence seven that tells you how to get involved. <laughs> it there. says right there in the email you're replying to, come on. But because I had like about 2 million customers, if I was at all unclear or used one too many sentences, I would get, you know, 5,000 replies, which would take hundreds of hours to reply to. So it was, I would feel the ultimate pain for every single sentence that wasn't necessary or every word that was unclear meant hundreds of hours of work, you know, and a lot of money lost in hiring people to answer those emails if I had written one unclear word or added one unnecessary sentence. So I guess that was probably also my boot camp training. <laughs> um, but then it's also this, just this minimalist desire to not put anything into the world that doesn't need to be there, you know, for the same reason we don't dump our garbage outside. Why should we dump our unnecessary sentences into the public? Um, I think it's coming from that same place. Or even if you see my house, right? Like the, uh, <laughs> the, the my only refrigerator is a, um, is a little uh, silent thing about this big, uh, sorry, what am I doing? About one meter square. Um, yeah, that that's my only fridge because I just like to make things as small as they can be. For most <laughs> of my life, I've 
had a fridge that was full size, but sat mostly empty. And for the first time in my life, I moved into a house that had no fridge. So I had to go buy a fridge. And I went, ah, finally, I'm going to get a fridge that's only what I need and nothing more. So, I, yeah, I guess I'm like that with my words and clothes and everything. And your computer code, same way? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, the fact that I spend my whole day in a uh, programming terminal uh, typing out every line of code by hand, I don't use any code generation tools. And so I... There's, if you look, if you do view source on my website on sive.rs, uh, you'll see no line of HTML code that doesn't absolutely need to be there. So yeah, you're right. It's yeah, it's in my code too. <laughs> you uh, you had the well, we'll call it the luxury in hindsight, but you had you had the luxury in hindsight of getting massive amounts of feedback when when you were being too wordy or or not being efficient enough. Is that a skill that's just now ingrained in you, or do you try and replicate that by your now that you're sort of writing by yourself? Hmm. I don't know if I'm trying to. It just, I guess, to me, it just kind of seems like how things should be. All right, like even when I'm listening to somebody's podcast. And if they take a long, unnecessary tangent, I'm like, come on, get to the point. <laughs> if I'm reading a book that has unnecessary sentences, I'm like, come on, don't need the fourth example. It, it, um, I remember being in school. Or let, let me put this differently. When all of us were in school, we probably all had the experience of being told to write 20 pages on a subject that we had only one page of anything to say about. So you start, you get used to this habit of going, well, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, in, in, in other words, I believe that, well, you know, henceforth and so and so, and, you know, let's say it again. And again, I will say it in another word from another angle, because once again, what I am trying to say is so-and-so, because so-and-so is what I'm trying to say. What you're trying to do is make more words. You're trying to fill pages. You're trying to meet a minimum word count. Yes, a minimum word count is what I'm trying to meet. <laughs> and in that mindset, it's like the more words, the better. And we feel that. And I think also people who, there are some people that want to write books. They want to have lots of books in the world. And so they put lots of words onto lots of pages and they say, there, there's my book. <laughs> Um, but I'm because of what I just said about like this aesthetic of trying to put the least into the world. I feel like I'm trying to do the absolute opposite of that. I'm trying to put the least number of words into the world that I can so that they'll actually be read. Um, but I also think it's considerate for the reader because the more blather you say, the more people tune out. Whereas if they can tell that every sentence counts, they pay attention better. Um, yeah, it's been really interesting. Like what I started doing with How to Live for the first time is challenging conjunctions, words like so and because. I would look at them and think, I, I say one sentence, and then I say, so, and I say the next sentence. But actually, just by putting those two sentences adjacent to each other, 
the relation is a given. So I don't need the word so there, do I? I don't need the word because. Um, and we definitely do not ever need to say, I think, <laughs> or in my opinion, because obviously if you're speaking, we know this is just your opinion and we know you are not God. <laughs> so we know you're just another person on earth with an opinion. So just say your opinion, uh, say the thing as if it's true because we know it's just your opinion. Um, and I think that when you remove every unnecessary word, it makes you sound more assured because most of these puffy phrases are softeners. Sof softeners? Softeners? We use them in everyday speech to be polite, but without them, your sentences are so much stronger if you remove all these softeners. So, yeah, I, I just, it works for me on so many levels. It's putting less noise into the world. It's making the sentences more assured. It makes people pay more attention to them. And I just, yeah, I just love it all the way around. Uh, you're you're very intentional in everything you do, and I and I think that's that's reflected in many well, things, right? <laughs> well, in my writing, <laughs> there are a lot of other things I do in life that that are very uh, unintentional. But yeah, what I, I consider writing to be putting potential noise out into the world, and so I think it's our responsibility to denoise it as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. You. Uh... You sort of have a, a contrarian view of one of the, the modern precepts of living, which is this idea of family. Uh, so I'm putting this in air quotes. Uh, what, who's in uh, your family and, and how, what do you consider to be your family? Um, well, if I take that literally, it's really just mainly two people, my kid, age nine, and my fiance. Those are the two in-person people in my life and then my four best friends are spread around the world and so that's that's it for my family i think well so what uh, let me just ask how do you mean the question do you mean it metaphorically or are you referring to like on my about page where i talk about family uh i think um i'm not sure i think you you, <laughs> you strike me as someone who uh might choose who who you bring close to you. I guess maybe maybe it's oh, more yeah. metaphorical then. I I would think yeah. Okay, um, yeah. On if you go to uh, on my website, there's an about me page where I got weirdly personal. Usually, as you can tell, everything I put out into the world, I do it for the sake of others. Otherwise, I would just keep it in my private diary. But uh. I wrote an about page on my website. It's like a longer about me. And I just decided to be honest just to see what would happen. And in there, I admitted, for example, that I'm just not into family. Like I've never felt any particular bond with my parents or just because somebody's a blood relative. Like it, it doesn't mean anything to me. You know, like I don't, I don't believe that blood is thicker than water or, or rather I, I disagree with that saying because Everybody's got blood. Um, and we're related to all of them. We're like, we're all cousins. And um, so I don't like that thing where people say, like, I need to 
go back to my hometown because this is my mother or I need to do a special favor because this is my uncle. It's like, oh, I just, I think of our, I think of myself as being equally connected to everybody in that blood sense. But, um, so that I wasn't sure if you were referring to that, like, uh, but yeah, then my family of choice is this very tiny unit of my, my kid and my fiance. And then like four friends that are remote around the world. Like that's my core family like that of, of choice. Um, and, but then I wasn't sure if you meant metaphorically, like <laughs> who are your peers? Like what, what group are you in? Cause that was an interesting thing that happened too. Like when you said earlier that I didn't used to consider myself a writer yeah, I, I still considered myself a programmer and entrepreneur until I realized that all of my heroes are authors. And I, I found that kind of telling to the, I think this is where I'm heading. I think this is where I want to be. If those are my heroes, that's where I want to be. So I think it can be telling for all of us to ask yourself, who are my heroes? And know that that's what that's telling you is that's where you want to be. Wonderful. But that's a different subject. Yeah. Well, I have uh, I have one more question for you that we can kind of bring sure. our conversation to a close. Uh, no right or wrong answer here, but uh, I'm I'm looking out at the landscape as an author, and there's all kind of things happening technologically. You know, there's blockchain and NFTs, and there's uh, consolidation of of New York publishing. There's a lot happening. Do you ever? look at that and sort of conjecture or think where it might be going? Or are you just sort of keeping your head down mm. and, and journaling and doing your writing and worrying about it later or not? <laughs> yeah, I think I've always appreciated the people that did timeless things driven from their own intrinsic motivation instead of just reacting to the world's situation, you know, uh, being proactive instead of reactive. So NFTs, I think it's useful to understand what they really are, like get to the core of it, like understand what Ethereum is and does and how the smart contracts make an NFT and a unique data item and what that means. And then think proactively how you want to do things in your ideal situation. Um, yeah, I often think a lot of my thought processes start out with this idea of, well, in a perfect world, how would it be? Or all other things being equal, what would I do? It's like getting to the, the core of how you would like things to be and doing it your way instead of trying to imitate others or doing things because others are doing them. Um, yeah, being proactive instead of reactive, even with our books, you know, that's, um, we haven't really talked about the distribution thing, but after I printed, published my books, um, at first I just assumed it was a given that I would put them on Amazon, but every time I was about to sign it up, I just kind of felt icky about that like i don't i don't want to put things on amazon you know what fuck them <laughs> like that's that's why did the world of independent distribution turn into this world of just kissing amazon's ass 
uh, you know, the the indie music scene in 1997, 89, uh, when I started CD Baby, had this incredible power of people realizing that thanks to MP3s and the internet, they don't need to sign their life away to a major record label. And musicians were like feeling this, this great power and independence of being able to distribute their music directly to their fans independently through their website, uh, through the internet. And it had, it just gave so much power to people and so much energy. And then now here we are 20 years later. And if you look at the world of independent distribution, especially for books, it's just everybody talking about, here's a, here's another way to kiss Amazon's ass. Here's another way to please Amazon. Here's how to make Amazon happy. And it just reminds me of the pre-revolution world of 1997. It feels like that's where we were at before people came in and busted up that monopoly of the major record labels. So um, I know I could make more money doing it, but if I think of things in a perfect world, how I'd like it to be, I just want to sell my books directly because I believe decentralization is good. Um, because it makes me happier because I like the direct connection between my customers and me and knowing who they are, that one known customer makes me happier than a hundred unknown customers, you know? And so you have to ask yourself about your values and what matters to you and think of that stuff from scratch. Sorry, I took quite a tangent. You were asking about the, do I try to predict where things are going? No, I don't. Um, I, I try to remain, um, deliberately ignorant about where things are going and not care and just think of what's timeless and how I'd like to be. All right, man, I know your voice is crapping out, so I don't want to, <laughs> I, I don't want to put you too much on the line here, but uh, Derek's a really unique guy, man. I love this interview. Uh, some things that caught your attention. Well, getting anger out of your life. Um, <laughs> and then, then he also mentioned coffee. Like I, I quit coffee when I, um, my wife was pregnant. Um, and I, I wrote, uh, we talked about this before. That's when I wrote a fifth, to, uh, the fifth to die. And I used the word coffee like a gazillion times in the book, like an, enough where my editor pointed it out as being a problem. Um, so it was obviously in my, my subconscious there, but like, I, I don't understand how you get rid of anger, you know, like, cause it's just, I mean, I, I imagine you could probably train yourself for this sort of thing. Um, but you know, with it being emotional response, does that mean that he's just bottling it up and then he's going home and kicking his puppy or something and, and getting it out? Um, I, it just, it feels like, you know, like, a, like a balloon, you know, like the, if, if you don't let the air out of it it's going to keep getting bigger and bigger until it pops like i don't know that you could actually do that but um very cool that he seems to have, have found a way um what jumped out as you from this guy his process was kind of mind-blowing to me and i know that it's it's a bit different for fiction versus non-fiction but in his uh how to live the newest book he has out he spent two years working on that book and he had i think he said something like 1100 pages that he had to and I mean, you were talking at the top of the show about you know cutting your your screenplay down like th that's a monumental task i mean I, I and i know that because you you sort of pants a lot or, or you or you were that you were forced to do that too do, do you ever remember having to cut that much percentage wise from from a work 
Um, it's it's honestly gotten to be less and less as I've you know get further and in, you know into into my career and the more books that I write, I, I tend to um, not leave those those filler words in there. Um, when I was first starting out, you know, and he touched on this a little bit, you know, like I had my certain word count I had to hit every day, so two to three thousand words, and you know sometimes I would run out of steam at like eighteen hundred, but I would keep going, and you know I would plug in another five hundred words or so and, and hit whatever benchmark I had, but then the next day I would look at those those words and like they glared at me, you know, like I I knew what words didn't belong there um and, and i would take him out um there's a book that we had mentioned before uh, with lee child where you know he's got a, a reporter that's sitting on his couch while he's writing one of the jack reacher books and one of the things he keeps calling back is in the the book is a one particular sentence um and he just trims it down like it starts off at like as like 12 words or something like that and he trims it down to 10 and he just keeps revisiting the same sentence over and over again and i think in the end it ends up like being four or five words um but you know it, it's clear and concise and uh, what uh, derek was getting at and I think is a huge point that a lot of people tend to gloss over is, you know, a lot of people, you know, especially in today's publishing world, will just write and write and write and they kind of do this word vomit thing and get enough done down on paper to, to get up, you know, what they consider to be a book out there. And then they just publish it without going through any type of editing process or any type of cleanup or, or any of that stuff. Um, and, it, and it just doesn't work. I mean, sure, you've got the word count, you've got the size, you know, if you print it out, you've got a nice big stack on your desk, um, but it's, it's not finished. You know, like I, I always think of, of books as a, you know, piece of steak, you know, like you have to trim the fat, you have to get them as lean as they possibly can be before you, before you actually share it with anybody. Um, and the best books that I've, I've worked on, the best ones that I've edited have always been books that were overwritten, just like Derek was mentioning, where they've trimmed back. You know, you just keep cutting it back, cutting it back, cutting it back. And then by the time you're done, you are left with the absolute best of the best. Um, when you try to go the other way around, you know, if you, end, you write a book that's 40,000 words and you try to take it to, to 60 or 80 um, by plugging stuff in, you know, you're adding that fat to it and it jumps out just as much as the, the other stuff does. So uh, it's a tough process and I, I, but I get why he did it. And I'm sure the book turned out fantastic because of that. Yeah, it, it really is. And, and, you know, strongly recommend and we'll have a link in the show notes. I mean, he said in the interview, you know, he was getting to the point where he was, he was really cutting words like so and because like, and you get down to, like you said, that level um, he's, he's forcing every word to play a role and it's got to be there for a specific reason. And I think that's the kind of writing I'm drawn to. Uh, it's minimalist, but it's purposeful. And, uh, and it, like you said, you're cutting the fat away and you're, you're giving the reader just what they need. And, um, I guess the, the hard part about that is I think that's really, it's really hard to be good at that. <laughs> you know, it's easier to throw a ton of words at something than it is to cut them back. And, uh, that's, that's, you know, how the game is played, I guess. Well, it is, but at the same time, you train yourself, you know, so if that first book, you are putting all those words down on paper, and you've got a paragraph that's, you know, 250 words, you know, if, if you were to write that same paragraph a couple of years later, after going through that editing process over and over again, you know, you're going to, it's going to come out of your head as 150 words instead of 250, like it's because your mind is going to start editing, and you train yourself to do that. Um, so it's, it's, it's important, and it's, it's definitely necessary. Yeah, yeah, I was uh, just so delighted to be able to, to to talk to Derek he you know he hasn't done many podcast interviews lately and he he's very um picky you know like he said in the interview most most people want to talk to him about business because he had many successful business ventures and uh you know the fact that he wanted to talk about writing was, was great and uh thoroughly enjoyed it and there were just so many great nuggets there I, I found myself listening to that interview multiple times even before uh you know before this show to just, just kind of soak it all in so I hope our readers appreciate that or listeners cool. rather. All right. Yeah. Who do we have up um, next week? 
Yeah, so next week uh, we have Jason Porath. Now, Jason, this is an interesting story. Jason co-wrote a book on Guns N' Roses. And I know that you're a big Guns N' Roses fan, as am I. Uh, and uh, I reached out to Jason because they started a podcast called The First 50 Gigs. And him and Mark, uh, Mark was Slash's best friend growing up and photographed the band in the very early days. I mean, he has pictures of Slash riding BMX bicycles. Uh, and so they combined to kind of tell that story of this, uh, the meteoric rise of Guns N' Roses in, in Hollywood in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. So uh, really looking forward to it. The podcast is excellent. Um, they're talking to a lot of people who were involved with the band and close to the band. And, uh, you know, whether or not you're a fan of Guns N' Roses, I think um, what's interesting about Jason is, uh, you know, the in this new sort of creator world, his ability to move from not just writing a book, but then turning that into a podcast. And he has plans beyond it. So I think it's going to be a fun conversation. Yeah, GNR is one of my favorite bands, so that's going to be a lot of fun. I can't wait. Nice. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.